want to invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious word to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to look at this evening uh, seven verses, Genesis 12, 1 through 7. As we've been studying through Genesis, we've been taking large sections and seeing the flow of the narrative, and yet this portion of God's Word is such a significant turning point in redemptive history, we're going to slow a bit and look at these seven verses tonight. I'll ask you to stand in reverence for the reading of the perfect words of our sovereign God. And by the way, I think that the sermon will be preached tonight without the special effects of this morning. Uh, Some of you may not have been here this morning, but we had debris falling out of the vents like it was raining debris this morning. Uh, I didn't know whether it was a spiritual event or... uh, but Josh tells me that an animal ate through ductwork and built a little nest, and so when we turned the air on this morning, it flew out on you. So I don't think there's any diseases or anything as a result of that. But tonight, no special effects, I don't think. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth shall be blessed." So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Mori. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, teach us tonight. Transform us because of what we see about what You have revealed about Yourself in Your Word. Lord, we have not gathered here just simply for information. We've gathered here to hear from You. To be changed, to be transformed, to know more faithfully what it means to follow You in this world. Oh Lord, bless our time together. Transform our lives as we see You in Your Word. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. May be seated. The God of the Bible is a relentless missionary God. The Bible presents God as relentlessly at work in the world, sovereignly at work spreading the gospel of His grace. Genesis 12, as it begins, is is one of the, the darkest moments in history up until this point. 
The situation is bleak. One of the bleakest moments in all human history, for it seems as though things are unfolding in such a way that everything that has come before is about to be snuffed out. There's a transition going on here in these verses. In chapters 1 through 11, uh, it covers... um, Long periods of time and many generations and large spans. And yet when we come to Genesis 12, there's an immediate transition. There's a change. No longer is it large spans of times and many generations. Now we hone in on a particular family. Genesis 12 through 50, the entire narrative is about Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. It's the whole deal. The rest of the book. You see, there's something going on here in the transition to God's call of Abraham that is significant for not only the rest of Genesis, but for the rest of the Bible. We saw Adam, and Abel, and Seth, and Noah, and then Terah, and then Abram. Adam got created in the image of God to rule the world under the authority of God, and yet there was the fall into sin as he rebelled against God. Then there was a promise that there would be a seed born of woman who would crush the head of the serpent. And Abel was born, and yet Cain killed Abel. And then God provided Seth. And then sin continued to spread in a fallen world and ultimately there was an attempt to build a tower to make one's name great. And God judged the world and there was a mighty flood of God's judgment and yet God preserved the world through Noah and his family. And now as the the story continues to unfold, as the story continues to be told, there is increasing sin and increasing rebellion in the world, and, and it is a situation in which there is, is, is basically no one who is following God. Look with me at Genesis 11, beginning in verse 27. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram. He's called Abram here. He's later called Abraham. It's just a slight distinction in the name between uh, exalted father, Abram, father of a multitude, Abraham. Uh, The promise of God has to do with the transition and the way he's referred to. But Terah fathered Abram, Nahor and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Naor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai's daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Now, this seems like the end of the line. 
You see, this people who are from Ur of the Chaldeans, which would be um, southern Babylon, modern-day Iraq, these people are a people who worship idols, a false god, the moon god. It is a lunar-worshipping people. This, this is not a people who acknowledges the, the true God. And we find them traveling here and, and, and heading on to, toward Canaan, and yet they stop and, and, and they settle there. They are a people from a land that is considered by many to be the literal, literal fountainhead of idolatry, a place where false gods are worshipped. One of the things that you have to know about this is that Abram doesn't enter the text because of his goodness. He doesn't enter the text because of his righteousness. He's a pagan. He's an idolater, and he's from a people of idolaters. In fact, uh, Joshua 24, beginning in verse 2, says this, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. They served many gods. See, there is no human fix to the problem. If God does not act, the line will be quenched. The line will be stopped. And yet God does act because God is at work in the world accomplishing His purposes. When when, um, Martin Luther, the great reformer, is talking about this text and he talks about Abraham and he says this, Abraham is merely the material that the divine majesty seizes through the word and forms into a new human being, a new humanity. He's merely the material We've got to come to grips with that, that that God pours out His grace on Abram, Abraham, merely because of His grace. God is determined to save a people. God is determined to work in the world, so He plucks this one out from under, uh, out out from this, this people who are marked by idolatry. And man, when we think about Abraham, we're thinking about uh, one in almost any direction that you try to explain human history, you cannot explain it without Abraham. All three major world religions trace their faith back to Abraham. Judy and I were in Israel recently and we're in Jerusalem, in this amazing city of Jerusalem the most contested piece of land in the history of the world. And in Jerusalem, there's a Christian mayor. There's, of course, a large Jewish uh, population. There's the temple area. And then in the Temple Mount, there, there's one of the most significant Islamic mosques in the whole world. So there you have, right there in Jerusalem, you have Christian, Jewish, and Muslim. This, who all claim to be Abrahamic Abrahamic religions. And yet, what the Bible tells us about Abraham is the missionary purposes of God, not because of Abraham, 
but because of God's grace. God would not let this be the end. God would not let the promise of Genesis 3.15 be snuffed out. God did not save Noah and create a, a new earth for no reason. And here in this text, we see the call of God, and it is a turning point in redemptive history in that no longer is the focus on scattered individuals in the whole world, as it has been before, but now the focus hones in on a particular man, a particular family, the creation of a nation, a race of people from that man, And it is a people that will be a covenant nation. God is proclaiming something in the world by the new way in which He is interacting among His people. And it all begins with Abraham and what God does with Abraham. Now, Abraham is not... um, God does not come to him because he is qualified. He becomes qualified because God calls him. The order is vitally important for us to to keep straight in our, in our head. God's call comes to Abraham. So I want us to see the call of God and see how it works. The call of God, the first thing uh, that we see in chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, is that it is a call to get out. Get out. Look with me at the very beginning of verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. Now, there's a lot being said there in a very small space. The Lord, Yahweh, the great covenant God, He's at work in the world. He speaks to Abram and He tells him, essentially, leave everything you have ever trusted in. We have a hard time understanding exactly what he's saying here because we have such a mobile society and we have such ability to communicate and, and from large distances. But when he says here to Abram, go from your country, leave the land that you have known, and your kindred, that is your family, and your father's house, it means that Abram is being told to walk away from his people, from his family, from his inheritance, and everything. See, at this time, the ability to be reared in the context of a family and to receive the inheritance of that family, everything was dependent upon that. And yet, the message to Abram is simple. If we were going to translate it most bluntly, He says, get thee out. Get thee out. Or get out yourself. You remember in chapter 11, verse 31, when I read that, that they were headed toward Canaan, but when they came to Haran, they settled there. That would have been northwest Mesopotamia. It seems like they, okay, this is a good spot. We put down roots. And yet, the message to Abram is even if you go it alone, you yourself get out. Go. Leave. It's a personal call of God to one man. 
And it is the grace of God. But it doesn't seem like it at first. The fact that the Lord God Almighty is speaking is gracious. God is under no obligation to reveal Himself to us. And yet He does. He does so much so we gather before the very words of our God tonight. But for Abram, it is totally disrupting. And by the way, it always is. See, the call of God on the lives of people is a call to abandon what you have formerly trusted in, no matter what that is. <coughs> Whether you formerly trusted in your own ability, your own wit, your own wisdom, some false god, whether you formerly trusted in drugs and alcohol to make it through, whatever you formerly trusted in, wherever your hopes resided, whether it be your family, whether it be the people that you're from, whether it be your career or your achievement, the call is a call that disrupts all of that and says your trust can't be in any of those places. So it's always a call to... Get out. To get out of the safe places. It's a call to trust. It's a call to walk away from whatever you thought was the inheritance that you would hope in. Whatever you believed that would give you a sense of identity. And you are now to get your identity in obedience to God. Whether that means leaving your country, leaving your family, leaving your house, whatever it is that you are called to leave that you had formerly trusted in, the message to Abram is blunt. It is direct. It is clear. Get thee out. Leave your country. Leave your family. And leave your house. The call of God on Abram's life is very disruptive to him. It is a call of sovereign mercy. When we put our faith in God, when God calls us out of the world, what we are saying is, He is our safety and security. We, we point that out in the baptistry all the time. When someone is is bearing witness to the gospel in the baptistry, what they are saying is, I have given up on trusting to myself. In fact, I have died to trust in myself. And what I trust in is being united by faith to Christ, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. But the new security that we trust in means that we have to walk away from things we have formerly trusted in. And so he says, get out. But he also says, give up. That is, give up control. If we are to get out of what we consider the safe place, we are also to give up control of our lives. We are following Him. The call of God says, get out from the safe place place, whatever you consider the safe place, and the call of God says, give up control. And we see that as verse 1 continues. Look with me there. He says at the end of the verse, to the land that I will show you. It's the first part of the promise, the promise of a land. 
You say, well, 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 that sounds safe. That, that sounds secure. But the land is to a land I will show you. So leave your land, leave your family, leave your house and go where? Somewhere. Somewhere I'm going to show you. I will give you direction, but I will not tell you where it will be. Do you feel that? If we're honest with ourselves, we tend to think, that's not fair. Okay, whatever God tells me to do, but at least I should know what I'm going to do. But you see, you have to step back, don't you? Abram doesn't want fairness. Fairness for idolaters like him and his family would be judgment. He doesn't want fairness. He wants grace. He has grace. The Lord spoke to him. And he told him to get out. And he told him to give up control. Give up control on you mapping out your own life. Now you will follow me. The call of God means the illusion of control is over. None of us really have control anyway because we can't make the things that we want to happen happen, but we like to cling to the illusion of control. And it's really a gracious gift of God to pull that rug out from under us because there's a trap door under that rug anyway. But for Abram here, the illusion of control is over. The Lord is the Lord and He has no rivals. You can't follow God and follow yourself at the same time. If you follow you, you won't be following God. Because nobody intuitively and inherently follows a path of obedience to God. We see it throughout the Bible. Even the disciples who are closest to Jesus don't understand why is He talking about going to Jerusalem and dying. None of us would have come up with the biblical story. None of us would have come up with the cross. You see, we are called to follow Him, and that means trusting Him. The Lord is the Lord, and He has no rivals. Your plan, and your expectation, and your desires, and your dreams are not Lord. The Lord is Lord. Yahweh is Lord. Hebrews 11 talks about this event in Hebrews 11.8, and it says this, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. In other words, that was the very essence of faith that he would follow the directive of God, that he would follow the words of God, even if he wasn't exactly sure where he was going. Because he was trading the family inheritance for whatever God had offered. And what God was offering would come at the place of God's own choosing. Let me unsettle you a bit more. This is not a rare occurrence. This is the way God works. 
If you know how the story continues to unfold, he not only says, listen, I'm going to give you a land. I'll show you later. Just start moving. He also says, I'm going to give you a son. When? I'll show you later. Just keep acting on that promise. Then he gives him the son. And he says, I'll give you a sacrifice. But I want you to take your son and offer him as the sacrifice. The promised son? What, what does this mean? Why would I do that? And the, the, the narrative tells us that it implies to us that Abraham believed that God was going to provide a sacrifice in the place of Isaac. But God didn't tell him how or what. So he takes him up on the mountain. And he ties him up. And he lifts the knife. And God provides a ram in the thicket. But do you see what is common to all three of those events? I'm not going to tell you exactly how it's going to unfold. Oh, I've got land for you. I'll show you later. I've got a son for you. I'll show you later. I'll provide a sacrifice. I'll show you later. See, this is not just an isolated occurrence. This is the way God works. And by the way, it's just simply a way to say that He is God and we're not. That's the nature of faith. There's a God and it's not the person we see in the mirror. We trust Him. Does God reveal everything to us? No, absolutely not. The Bible says the secret things belong to the Lord. But if He doesn't reveal everything to us, how can He command us to obey Him? Because what He has revealed to us shows us His character. If you're a parent, that's not all that hard to understand. Even if you wanted to. Even if you were foolish enough to try to. You cannot explain the hows and whys of everything that you're going to ask your children to do every step of the way. But you accept, expect them to obey you even when they don't understand. Why? Because of your character. You have shown them that you love them. You have provided for them. You have cared for them. What it means for them to trust you is not just to follow you when they understand the whys. Trusting you means they follow you when they don't understand the whys. That's trust. That's what God calls for. But his track record is way better than ours. I tell my kids all the time, hey, you know, I'm going to mess up. I'm not saying follow me because I'm never going to mess up. I'm saying follow me because I know way more than you and you're going to be better off than you follow me and then if you follow yourself. But God doesn't mess up. The track record's perfect. 
So when he says to us and graciously calls us out and says, get out of the safe place, he's really calling us to a safer place. But there's a lot of question marks on the way. And what he's calling us to do is to give up control. Your plan, not mine. Your expectations, not mine. Your desires, not mine. Your dreams, not mine. And after all, what we're saying is that my dreams are puny compared to God's. My expectations are foolish compared to God's. My desires are paltry compared to God's. My plan leads to destruction, but His does not. This is the way God works. This is the way Jesus worked with His disciples. He didn't tell them everything. He couldn't. They couldn't understand. But He lived among them in a way that was worthy of their trust. And when we live like this, when we get out of our safe place in His name, when we give up control, to the degree that we do it, we are strengthened in our faith And we are being weaned off of self-trust. And we find out that the safe place is getting out and giving up. But I also want you to see this in verses 2 and 3 and following. Not only do we have the call of God that is get out and give up. But all of this is leading with Abraham to the plan of God. The the call of God gives way to the plan of God. And the plan of God we see in these verses, verses uh, 2 down through verse 7, is to go bless. You see, it's not just simply for us that He calls us. It's not simply for us that He calls for us to get out. It's not simply for us that He calls us to give up. But the plan is that as He blesses us, we would go bless others. Look with me there. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you. And make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. Now, He promised the land. Now he promises a great nation or a people. The particular word he uses here for nation, and the reason they translate it nation, is because it represents a defined nation geographically. See, the land promise gives way to the nation promise. That's what he's going to do to Abram. And then he says, I will bless you. I will make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. So so the Tower of Babel, they were trying to build a tower to make their name great apart from God. God does away with that project. And now He says, I will build a people. I will make their name great because of my grace. Totally different reality. When he comes to Abram here, he says, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a people or a great nation. 
and I'm going to bless you. But he immediately turns that around and says that he is going to bless him so that he will be a blessing. Go bless others. That's the purpose of all of this. Now, when he gives the promise of the land, by the way, which he reiterates in verse 7, to your offspring I will give this land. And then when he promises a great nation, a defined people, what must Abram be thinking? I'm 75 years old. My wife can't have children. Some promise a great nation. Sounds like to somebody who has passed what they perceive as childbearing time and whose wife is barren. You see, none of what God is promising here can happen apart from a baby being born, a promised child. That keeps happening since that initial gospel promise in Genesis 3.15. All of this, all of this hinges on the birth of a child. There can't be a nation if there's not a baby. He will bless him. That is a promise of the promised child. He will make his name great, not for the sake of Abram, but for the sake of God. That's why he did away with the Babel project, but he is building a people for his name. And every bit of it is to be a blessing to others. Now, the word blessing... is the idea of the favor of God. The favor of God. The the grace of God. In Hebrew, the the hesed of God. the, The steadfast love of God. The covenant love of God will be poured out on one man who's in this promised line and a nation will be built off that man. But as God shows His favor to that man, that man is to show His favor to others, so that they may get in on this blessing. He is immediately to be thinking not simply of himself and his own name, but he's to think of a people that he will bless because he is blessed. You heard the psalm that Casey read earlier in the service. We unashamedly can can pray to God, Oh, Lord, bless us if... The end of that prayer is so that we can bless the nations. We can bless the peoples. We can bless others. So there's nothing wrong with praying for the blessings of God in every way, as long as you see yourself as a conduit for those blessings and not as a depository for those blessings. It's a total different reality. We use our advantage for the advantage of others. That's what's going on here. Get out, give up, and go bless. That's the way it works. It's the way it's to work with Abram. That's the way it's to work in our lives as well. Look with me at verse 3. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all of the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
That promise is reiterated in Genesis 18.18, in Genesis 28.18, in Genesis 26.4, in Genesis 28.14, and throughout the Bible. God is insistent in reiterating this promise. We see it's a part of apostolic preaching in Acts chapter 3. We see the Apostle Paul is framing his whole narrative defense of the gospel on this promise. This, this person who is to be this family, who is to be this nation, is going to be the one who blesses the nations because it is to be a light to the nations. In you, Abram. All of the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, if you want to see how uh, committed God is to that promise, I could read Paul's entire letter uh, to the Galatians to you because he never stops mentioning Abraham as he's defending the gospel, justification by faith alone, being declared righteous by faith in Christ alone, not by works. But let me just read a few excerpts out of Galatians chapter 3 to show you how this works. Galatians chapter 3 verse 6 says, Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, <coughs> preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Do you see that? It's saying that what we're reading tonight in Genesis 12 is God preaching the gospel beforehand. Beforehand what? Before the gospel is clarified in Christ. This is the gospel in Genesis 12. God's grace being poured out on someone. The call to, 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 to go out. The call to give up. The call to go bless. This is the gospel call. He's saying here that Gentiles are the uh, children of Abraham. That, that those who are, have the faith of Abraham are blessed along with Abraham. So we rightly say in Christ that we are the children of Abraham. Galatians is going to go on to make the case that since Jesus was the only Jew faithful to the covenant promises and he died for sinners and rose from the dead that those who put their faith in him are now a part of the Israel of God whether they be Jew or Gentile the promise of God is expanded to the Gentiles this is the way he puts it in Galatians 3 beginning in verse 13 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, 
and to your offspring who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Do you hear that? The, the Abrahamic covenant is fulfilled not in offsprings, but in an offspring who is Christ. The way to be a part of the Abrahamic covenant is to come to faith in Christ. To be included in the people of God. To receive the promise of God. To be a people who receive the promise of the land. In the expanded sense, that includes not just the, the promised land in an immediate sense, but a whole world that's transformed by Christ, saved by Christ and scattered throughout the world, but one day is gathered in a new heavens and new earth where there will be a new Jerusalem, but from that new Jerusalem, the entire globe will be a place where God is served and glorified and magnified. And Christ will be made much of forever and ever. This is so powerful, the way this works here. Look with me beginning at verse uh, 4 and 5. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's sons, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan. Now, let's pause right there because it's really kind of ironic that they come to the land of Canaan, that this is the place where God brings them. Because Canaan was the region that was settled by the descendants of Canaan, who was the cursed son of Ham, if you remember in Genesis 9.25. So it's the outworking of the line of the serpent. And now this reclaimed people through Abraham is being led where the line of the promised seed born of woman who will crush the head of the serpent, is placed right here and brought right into the midst of the seed of the serpent. This is what God is doing. As we said this morning, it's all spiritual warfare. It's all about a battle of kingdoms. And those kingdoms are fought in terms of offspring. And ultimately, God is at work in the world saving a people who are not, uh, according to the first Adam, but according to what the New Testament calls the last Adam, Christ, the one who saves a new humanity of people. Look at verses 6 and 7. Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Mori. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. His response is to worship, to praise God, to praise God for what he had done, to praise God for calling him to get out from what he had seen as the safe place, to, to, to praise God for calling him to give up 
on trusting in himself and to give up on his own plan, to give up control and to go bless. The Lord was bringing him to this land. He was giving him a a people in a place that would live under his rule. Do you see that? That's the way it works all the way throughout the Bible. God's people in God's place who are under God's rule. It's the way it works. It's the very beginning of the Bible. We have God creating Adam and Eve in His own image, uniquely created in the image of God. They were God's people in God's place, which was the garden. It was a, a, a temple kingdom here that they were to rule to the glory of God. They were living under God's rule. They were to be His, his representatives, His vice regents. They were to subdue the world to the glory of God. God's people in God's place under God's rule. And yet they listened to the voice of the serpent and there was the fall into sin. And so God is at work in the world keeping his promise that he will reclaim a people through the birth of a child. And God does that and preserves that line. And even when he judges the world again, he preserves that line and Noah is saved. And now we get to the point where God is saying, okay, I'm calling my people out of the world and I'm giving you a place and that place signifies the fact that my people live under my rule. That land is going to be the promised land. There's going to be a temple in the midst of that that represents the fact that I am there. I'm dwelling in the midst of my people. But the people continue to rebel. They are not faithful to the covenant promises. So there comes an Israelite, Jesus of Nazareth, who's described in the Bible as tabernacling among us. And he comes, and he is the one who is faithful to the promise, and he lives in the world to the glory of God in the place that God has sent him under God's rule and authority. And He saves a people. And God rules the world through His church. And so no longer are there people who go to a particular place, but that place is the church scattered throughout the world. But there is coming a day when all of the people will be gathered again. Except that place that starts in the new Jerusalem will extend throughout the entire globe. And in the new heavens and new earth, God's people will live in God's place under God's rule forever and ever. And the promise to Abraham will be fully and finally consummated. You see, this message here that unfolds in the rest of the Bible is about a missionary God. But what I want you to see tonight, my burden tonight, is to show you that a missionary God demands a missionary people. One of the main problems in evangelical Christianity today is Christianity is turned into such a therapeutic deal. People 
come to the Bible and go to church because they just want sort of somebody to help them cope with their problems and sort of get through another day, but it's very self-referential. It's very self-centered. I'll let you in on something. If you follow God, you're opening the door for a bunch of new problems. You are. There is no promise in Christianity. Turn the TV off of those who have the lisp of Satan who are telling you that Christianity is about making your life easier. That Christianity means you won't ever get sick. Christianity means that you'll get rich like you want to get rich. There is a lisp on that voice even today because it is satanic. That's not what the Bible says. It's not what God is calling us to. What God is saying is that if you live without me, you're going to have all kinds of problems. And at the end of the day, they're going to be purposeless. Because the end of that path is destruction. Because you deserve punishment for your sins. So all the pain that you've endured and all the difficulty at the very end will be consummated in the judgment of God. And that means that apart from Christ at death, the pain is only beginning. The emptiness is only beginning. But what God says is, I am saving a people in the world. They are going to be my people. And they're going to live in my place. Right now, the church. They're going to live under my rule. And one day, I'm taking them to a place where I fully and finally dealt with sin. Where my people will live as my people in my place, in new heavens, new earth, under my rule forever. Until then, make much of me. I've blessed you. Now you bless the nations. Tell everyone about me. Point everyone to me. And you'll go through difficulty like other people. You'll get sick like other people. All of those things will happen. But if you do those things focused and fixated on me and pointing to me, they are not purposeless. They are full of purpose and they're full of meaning. They're the way I communicate in the world that I'm the light of the world. That's a totally different way of seeing it. Jesus not only redeems his people, but he redeems our lives. And he even redeems our pain and difficulty and suffering and says it will fold over into eternity and make a difference. You know, there was a day when there was an innocent man hanging on a cross. And it was a wicked, rebellious deed that put him there. Wicked hands. But it's the only way that any of us can be saved. God is able to take the worst deed in human history, the crucifixion of the Son of God, and fold it over to His plans and make us the greatest act in human history, of His willing sacrifice for sinners. 
And he raises him from the dead to vindicate that Jesus was on that cross, not paying for his own sins, for he had none, but for the sins of all who would believe in him. If he can take the wicked deed of the crucifixion of an innocent man, the God-man, and fold that over into his purposes, he can do the same thing with your pain and difficulty in suffering. In fact, he promises to do so. Paul says in Romans that, that the, the things that we go through now are not worthy to be compared to the weight of eternal glory. You say, oh yeah, but I'm going through this now and that's just a promise. Yeah, that's the way it works, right? He says, I'm going to give you eternal glory. You say, how do I know? He's got a good track record. He's worthy of your trust. See, the issue is whether or not you believe that for those who are in Christ, the end result is God's people saved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ in God's place, a new heaven and new earth where sin is fully and finally dealt with and banished. Living under God's gracious rule forever. And if you do, this is the already but not yet. We are the already of His people who put our faith in Him. His place is the church. And His rule is mediated in the world through the church. And so we face difficulty and we suffer. But we trust. We believe. And we keep marching on knowing that not one single second of our lives is meaningless in Christ. And one day he'll clarify that for all eternity. See, this move here in redemptive history is the move that we're living. We are the people who are the fulfillment of this promise. You mean, this promise to Abraham so long ago that Ur the Chaldees in Haran? The result is Lexington, Kentucky? You better believe it. And one day, the address will not be Lexington, Kentucky. It'll be a new Jerusalem. Until then, get out, give up, and go bless. Let's pray.